Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of CNG Partners designed for culture. Today, I am joined by Tim McNeil to take a sneak peek at the upcoming book, exhibition, and experience design handbook. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Great to be here. So to get started, for people who don't know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? I'm a professor in the Department of Design at the University of California, Davis, where I teach courses on exhibition design and environmental graphic design. And I also have practice exhibition design as well. I'm also the director of a small museum on campus, the Design Museum is a great avenue for me to use it as a laboratory for testing exhibition ideas and curatorial concepts as well. Awesome. And I have a favorite side question for people on the show because it's always such an interesting answer. How did you get into this business, this business of exhibition or, as you just said, exhibition and experience design? And then special writer question to that, how did you get into teaching? Hey, let's see. I come from a long line of designers in my family. My father was an architect. Uh, my uncle's a graphic designer. My aunt's a fashion designer. So design is inherently in my blood, I suppose. And uh, I have an undergraduate degree in graphic design and then a master's degree in graphic design. But I put a slant on that, created my own sort of program, which was more focused on exhibition design. So in some ways I have, I've always really wanted to be involved in that field, in, the, in this field, but I started off actually in television when I graduated and worked in film and TV for a while. And then after I was working in film and television, I was lucky enough to take, get an internship at the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles, I had done my study in London in the UK and had this amazing opportunity to come out and take spend nine months at the Getty working. What I found out was on a brand new building, which was then when they were building the Getty Center. And uh, I ended up staying there for 15 years and not only worked on the Getty Center, but then on the renovation of the Getty Villa as well. So the Getty was my crash course in museum and exhibition design. And I kind of think about it as being my introduction to museum studies, working with some amazing people on great projects with good budgets. Can't really argue with that. And it allowed me to really hone my exhibition design skills and go from there. And then I've also worked as a, as a, in a, as a private practice as well under Mutas McNeil, where over the years we've done various exhibition projects for different clients and different museums, not just art museums, but science, natural history museums as well. And then about, gosh now, 18 years ago, I saw an opportunity for an appointment as a professor in the Department of Design at the University of California, Davis. And I thought, hey, gosh, these don't come up very often because this particular position was someone to teach courses in exhibition design as well as run the design museum on campus. 
And that really has led into the project we're going to talk about today. And that's the book I've written, which is based a lot on the many years of teaching that I've done and compiling that into something that I hope is useful to everybody. Let me get this straight. If I rewind the tape, you are a professor at UC Davis and you are doing exhibition and experience design projects as well in private practice and you run the design museum at the university and you have written a book. Do I Have I got that right so far? Yeah, you have. That's okay. when you say all of that, it makes it sound insane, doesn't it? <laughs> I think we have to keep this podcast short because uh -huh. you're, you're the hardest working man in this field. I thought I was hard work and you've got me beat. That's amazing. So we are going to talk today about this book. We were talking a little bit in the green room for the show about this book. I am personally extremely excited about this book. I'm like vibrating a little bit. Just from your description of what it is, I am really eager to get a copy of it, but I don't think anyone's getting a copy of it until it comes out. And it's going to be called Exhibition and Experience Design Handbook. Is that right? That's correct. And, and when is it coming out? It's due to being released or published and available in July this year. Great. You can pre-order it. And what We'll put that in the show links for sure. But who is the publisher? It's Roman and Littlefield, and they're associated with the American Alliance of Museums. Got it. And, okay. um, so it'll be in their yeah. bookstore, and it'll be at conferences and all that kind of thing. That's right. Oh, that's and so this really And for Roman and Littlefield, for, a, for AAM, American Alliance of Museums, it's really the first book that looks at the sort of history, theory, and practice of exhibition design uh -huh. as a, an entity just on its own. So we're, we're going to do a little preview. We're going to preview a few of the chapters in our conversation today, which I think listeners, by the time we're done with that, you're going to have a bunch of pre-orders. But first of all, what inspired you to write the book? Yeah. When I was as a practicing designer before I got into teaching and working at a university, I probably would never thought that I could ever write a book. Um, but I see myself as a very visually driven person who... I love designing, and a book to me was always something I can write. Clearly, I hopefully have demonstrated that, but it was not something I put on the front burner. Once I started teaching and clearly and working at a large research university like, like UC Davis, I was surrounded by colleagues in my department who were writing and using writing as a medium for the expression and talking about design. So that gave me some impetus for what I'm doing. I was surrounded by people I could learn from. Mm -hmm. And as I started, as I mentioned before, as I started teaching, there's nothing like teaching a subject to have to really delve into what it really is about and go back to basics. So I suppose in some ways being in that environment definitely gave me the confidence to write a book. And then, like I said before, teaching gave me the opportunity to share information, which was then more readily available to package into a book and, and present and put together. I'd also say that writing a book to me is a bit like design. In fact, to me, a, a book is an exhibition. It has all of the same ingredients, except of course, the format is a very different format. So in some ways, as 
without giving too much away, the book is a little like an exhibition, the way I've written it and the way I've structured it. So it's a book about exhibitions that itself is an exhibition. Yeah. Okay. How meta guess, can you get? I guess you could get a little more meta if you wanted to, but that's meta yeah. enough. I love that. Now I'm really doing that pre-order. Anyway, let's get right into this. We're going to do a little teaser. We're going to do a little trailer, a little sneak peek. And as always, I know the list of things we're going to talk about, the short list, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. Now, in this case, instead of just a list, this is actually, we're going to look at five of the chapters of the book. There are a total of 12 chapters, I think you told me before. Is that right? That's correct. So the first one, chapter one, is called, in your upcoming book, is called Streakers, Strollers, and Studiers. And I've written about something similar in the past, and of course, I've lived it. But tell me what that chapter is going to be about when readers get this book, and what have you learned by writing it? Chapter deals with Will. as a short subtitle that is about people. And clearly, any design project, and let's say any exhibition, and any experience begins with people, right? We think about who we're designing for, what are their needs, how can we make this accessible to everybody, how can we make it inclusive, and give, make a space that gives a sense of belonging. Now, it probably for me was one of the hardest chapters to write because there's been a lot already written within the museum field, particularly about people, audiences, guests, visitors. I refer in the chapter to people as people and as audiences. And I, without giving much away, there is a rationale behind that, even though I know there are many other terms within our industry and field for what, how we refer to the people we're welcoming. So it was a harder one to write because it was I didn't want to necessarily I couldn't really cover all of it and nor did I really need to because there's too many, there's so many other great resources out there and I could not have done that any better. The book really looks more broadly at experiences across a whole realm of different areas. So it looks at theme parks, trade shows, somewhat into retail as much as it is at museums and many other fields too. My theory as I start in the book is that design is design and that the venue and the content might be different, but the way we approach the design from a bigger picture is the same regardless of those particular venues. And then we also, in the design tradition, have you know, looking at human-centered design and the role of design for people and accessibility and accessible design has been around for quite a long time too. If you think about the 1970s in Scandinavia, where a lot of that began, and also into the sort of 1980s with human center design. And so designers have come at their understanding audiences maybe from a slightly different perspective than museum professionals have, in the sense that it's always been there an underlying thing about prototyping, about testing, about user-centered research, and there are a lot of techniques about that. And again, I touch on them in a chapter, but I can't go into the whole thing. It's just such a vast field. But what's interesting today about looking at audiences and people for experiences and exhibitions is how we've moved much more to a more inclusive design approach and the idea of intersectional design. 
which really looks at a broad audience who don't necessarily, who maybe have been overlooked in the past or exhibitions haven't catered to all our audiences in the past. And that we now are much more focused on identity, gender, race, ability, and the fluency of people to navigate these experiences we're creating as well, and how that is only going to get greater as we move forward. And going back to the Streak Australia study, I find that a really, it's a bit of a con controversial term as I discovered as I did more research into it and talked to others that it doesn't, it isn't really the whole picture, is it? All that really does is say, yeah, there are some people who come to exhibitions and they may spend a few seconds. There are some people who may spend a few minutes and there are some people who will spend hours depending on their level of interest and the mood they may be in and other factors that might be influencing their visit. I think it's also, I was going to ask you about the title itself. I'm glad you looped back around to that. In the business, there's a couple of different versions of that trope. It's streakers, strollers, studiers, or streakers, strollers, scholars. Exactly. There's also the, the the skimmers and the swimmers and the deep divers. There's uh -huh. another version. I wrote about this a few months back, and I forgot what the third version is, but there's other ways of thinking about it. I've just described it as, that's obviously, that's not a way of looking at your audience demographically. But it's more sort of the psychographics of attention span. So I'm glad you looped back around to the title of the chapter. I also wanted to ask, you made the point that this is about, even the title of the book, Experience, Exhibit and Experience Design Handbook. You also just made the point about theme parks and trade shows and real is partly is that partly because of where your students go on to work? Is that is that broader focus related to the students that you teach? Or is it related to your in interests? It's a bit of both. I've always been interested in, I would say that most of my work has been in museums, but the things I derive influence or inspiration from are not other museums often. I find far more inspiration and ideas coming from other types of environments, right. whether that's in a re retail space, whether that's a streetscape or a park, whether that's a theme park. The question about students, yeah, given where the university is in Northern California, there's definitely a Silicon Valley, certainly within the field of user experience and user interface design, UI, UX. It's huge. And many of the students I teach aren't going to become exhibition designers, but they are going to go and work in those fields. And then, of course, there's the draw of Southern California as well and the theme park industry, which has its roots very much within there with Disney and others. So there's, yeah, all of that, I think, mixes into what to, to why I'm interested in this bigger picture. And I also think as designers, it's our duty to look beyond the things that are right in front of us, right? We need to look at the much bigger picture and see all, the, all of the periphery in order I'm, to understand where we need to put our focus. I'm, I could ask many more questions about chapter one, but the one I'm interested in is something you said at the very beginning of your description. You made a point that when you refer to people as people and as audience, and you don't use any of the other words that you might have. And I've had experiences in my life, and I've written about this sort of, some museums, especially more towards the West, influenced by theme parks, call their visitors guests. And I've made the sort of half tongue-in-cheek, half not point that a museum visitor isn't a guest because for various reasons, but why audience? Why do you use that word? 
I'm I'm like psychoanalyzing you and remembering that you said you started in film and TV. Yeah, I think because I, I mean I. Well, the other word that I didn't mention, I don't use it either, is participants, which is a big one that's out there now because it's, it, of course, implies that your audience is not just a passive one, but an active one. And I like audience because I I feel that what we're doing is a bit like we're putting on a show, right? That's what exhibitions are. Regardless of the content, we are putting on a show and and creating an environment and a space not only to convey information and objects effectively, but to make people feel like they want to be there and stay there and engage with what you're putting on view as well. Uh, chapter two, let's talk about chapter two. This one, chapter two is going to be called Once Upon a Timeline. Once Upon a Timeline. Say, tell us, tell our dear listeners what where that's coming from and what they can expect from that chapter when they pick up this book. Okay, so this chapter delves into narrative and how important narrative is to exhibitions and experiences. It, it's all an inroad into that how we view how we use time to structure stories, and that also the sort of design of experiences is somewhat timeless. We can trace storytelling back for centuries. And the typical way of organizing an exhibition is chron okay, chronological, or at least that's one. But of course, as you have pointed out in previous podcasts, and there are many ways we can develop narratives and construct those. But it is, so it's a starting point to talk about that, about how designers use, so use the timeline or use narrative to structure sequence and bring to life exhibition stories. It's a way of looking at how chronology is repeatedly used, but of course there are many other ways of deviating from that. And so the chapter looks at how we script stories and how they play themselves out within a variety of exhibition spaces and experiences. So when I refer to story or narrative, I don't just mean the content, that's part of it, but I also mean the journey that we take our audience is on. So that journey, as we mentioned before, when we talked about streak or stroll of study, could be, is a people are in motion, they could be walking, but they could also be riding an elevator. They could be taking an escalator. They could be on a bus. They could be on a boat. They could be on a Ferris wheel. So it, it begins to look at expanding that the role of the designer is not just about telling the story, but how you convey the conveyance of the story as well, and how that can reinforce the narrative or add to it effectively. It also gets, and I, one part I'm very interested in is how different designers, and there's a few examples in the book from different design studios, of building, are constructing, as they begin a project, they almost develop like a musical score where you look at all the variety of different things you're trying to do. So it might be, it's like how you script it. So it's almost story, but like a musical score. You might think about music as having a crescendo and a decrescendo and a movement. You might think about how lights playing throughout telling that story. You might look about how texture might be there. So 
there's some great examples out there of different design firms playing with this. And again, it's, there's the link back to theatre and to film of, of scripting a story in different ways and not just thinking about it through the objects, which may be important depending on the type of exhibition you're doing, but all the other factors as well and how those all play a part in the story and di at different times as you traverse the space. So you, you talked just now about designers now who are great examples in the book, but you also said when you were describing this chapter right at the beginning that the design of experiences is also itself timeless because we can trace this kind of storytelling back centuries. So it makes me wonder how far back does the book go? Where do you plant the flag of the start of this? Or what's your what's the first point of reference on the timeline of this exhibition that is a book that good, readers good, will good, say? Good, good question, Jonathan. Excellent. Yeah, because that was a tough one. Because how far back do you go? And also, how far, did, how far did I really want to go? Because a lot of the early, let's say, there's a lot being written already about the history of museums and the beginnings of museology and museological practice and the Wunderkammer and the, the sort of classic early examples of museum making. I was very hesitant not, I didn't want to go that far back. I wanted to look at when I felt that when design began to make a difference to these types of spaces. When was the designer engaged in the process in an active and equal leadership role? And that, so really, in some ways, the book is looking at the history of the professionalization of exhibition design. And indeed, at the beginning of the book, there is a timeline, appropriately, that looks at the history of exhibition design and experiences and some of the key moments in that. But I begin it around about 19, 1910, 1920s, is where I feel that the designer was invited into the exhibition making process with a mind to change, to, to make, to put their mark on it rather than being, rather than say being an architect who was hired to do the building and then happened to say, we'll also do this and that, or rather than it being more curatorial led or led by another team of technicians or others. But when was the designer brought in to actively shape that space and have a say in what things happen? So that's my beginning point. And it also goes back and, okay, this is a little bit of a design trope, one which we're questioning a lot nowadays within the design profession about the Bauhaus. But you can't ignore the fact that the Bauhaus, the German School of Design in the 1920s and 30s, where it began, was the first to really think about mixing theatre, architecture, graphic design, and other things together to create what we really now call exhibition design. But it was the melting of those together and the teaching of that subsequently. The early Bauhaus curriculum has exhibition design as one of its classes that that kind of maybe is the at least not definitively, but I think the beginning of formal exhibition design education and practice. And that's gone from there. So it's a great question because that history is a big one. And I am not the person to write the entire history of exhibition experiences. 
but I am interested in that beginning of when the designer really begins to play a role in a significant way. Because you mentioned, you've mentioned several times that much has been written about this, much has been written about that, and you didn't want to repeat that. That implies that you had to read all those things. How crazy is your bookshelf? <laughs> Does your bookshelf, I'm starting, to, I'm starting to think your bookshelf probably looks like my bookshelf, and my <laughs> bookshelf is a little bit unnecessary. How crazy is your bookshelf? Uh, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> I'm also very lucky, again, at an advantage of working at a large research university is an amazing library and mm -hmm. having access to that material, both on the shelves physically, but also online libraries too, really is, is a big help. Just as an interesting side note on that too, maybe one of the other impetuses or reasons for writing this, or wanting to write this book or being interested in the history of exhibition design was that the yeah. library at UC Davis has this amazing collection of historical books on exhibition design. And I was a bit like, well, what, why? And then I put it together that, that my predecessor, in the, as, who was then teaching exhibition design before I was here at UC Davis, had asked the library to acquire these books and before that over many years. So this is why they have built this up. So there's this great archive of all the books pretty much that have been published on exhibition design. There aren't a lot but there were a few key ones. And that was really interesting to me too, because as I started to look at the books and these books were published, I think the earliest is maybe in the 1940s. There's definitely a quite few from the 50s and 60s where exhibition design again really began to ramp up post-war, the ability to build things much quicker and faster with more lightweight and materials. Suddenly exhibition design began to really develop at that time. So a lot of books were produced post-war around the subject, or quite a few books. But as I looked through the books, at these black and white images of various exhibitions, not just museums, a lot of trade shows, a lot of commercial exhibition spaces, I began to go, hang on a minute, nothing's really changed that much. And I would see examples, and I would go, gosh, I know I would never even think about doing that now. I couldn't believe how far ahead of time. It seemed like our, as much as we talk about all of this progress within our field, some things just really hadn't changed. Like there were still lightweight structures with the way thing, the way the exhibition space was designed and how architecturally there were these beautiful spaces with these amazing structures in them with objects in them and things hanging off them and all this really quite clever use of materials and architectural form. And that really had something to do with the book too, of why is it that we're still doing the same thing? And that's what led me down to thinking about the, oh, we really have got these certain tropes or methods that we have used time and time again. Now, are you saying, because hang on just yeah. a second, are you saying that, because yeah. I, I totally agree with you, I don't think I have any 1940s, but I've got 1950s, 1960s. I want access to this library immediately. but. When you say, why are we doing the same thing? Are you talking about why are we living out the same cliches? Or are you saying that this made you realize that there's a typology, there's a pattern language of, without a value judgment on it, that how come after all these hundreds of years or millennia, how come in architecture, we're still making all these doors that the idea that there's, that, that's, that you're discovering the trope, you're discovering the pattern language in these books and discovering that it is there and it is a timeless thing without judgment? Or are you saying 
good God, we're all tired. Can't we be more inventive? Or are you saying both? No, I'm not saying that. I, what you said there about a pattern language is absolutely right. That's what I, That's what became apparent to me, that there is a vocabulary, there is a systematic way of putting exhibitions together. And it's not just exhibitions, it's other environments as well. But there is definitely things we've been drawing on for a long time. And the thing that's really, of course, changed is the tools and the technology to do those things. That's what's advanced, of course. So we don't need slide projectors any longer, right? We use projection, high-end projection systems, but we don't build out of wood. We build out of composite materials that are much lighter or less expensive or easier to manipulate. Okay, here's a quick station identification. If you are just joining us, thank you for joining us, and you are listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this podcast is a project of CNG Partners, designed for culture. If you find this show valuable, please help us spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also write a review in Apple Podcasts, or you can just tell a friend. And thank you a thousand times over for helping to spread the word about making the museum. Now, back to the show. We are talking with Tim McNeil about his upcoming book. We're taking a sneak peek at this. It's going to be called The Exhibition and Experience Design Handbook, and that is coming out this summer, but you can pre-order it now. We're going through a little teaser of some of the chapters. We've talked about a few of them. We're going to talk about some more now, and I think Next up is chapter five, and chapter five is called Wow Moments. Can you tell our listeners more about what they're going to find there? Yeah. Chapter five is looks at spectacle within the exhibition experience environment and how we use that as a key tool to wow our audiences. And it can range from the tiniest things, such as an amazing object that is incredible and worthy of close viewing to something on a really large scale, of course, that just pulls us in because of the sheer, its sheer volume. The, again, the wow moment is a trope within the exhibition experience field. It's not a new thing. It's been used again for centuries and the idea of creating something that people gravitate to a central place or object, the way maybe if you look historically at site, religious sites, how those have been constructed as complete wow moments, and within every one there's usually a centerpiece or something, an altar that you've drawn to. And it also focuses on three key case studies, and each case study is drawn from a similar moment in time, meaning that there's one case study that's early 20th century, there's one case study mid to late 20th century, and then there's one case study in the 21st century, which tends to be between in the up to present day. So that allows me to show how the trope has been used in all those different times to show its continuum, essentially. Um, so one of the ones in this chapter, I'll talk about that case study because I know it's one that you are very familiar with as well which is Cambridge Seven Associates design for the Montreal Expo uh-huh. and the US Pavilion in 1967, which to me is all about wild moments, not only because of the R. Buckminster Fuller geodesic 
dome that that particular pavilion was seated within, which is a wow moment into itself in terms of a structure, in terms of a building. From the monorail that runs right through the middle of it, let's face it, you can't get much more of a wow moment than that too. But the real thing that I think is very clever about that piece of design is how all of the levels within the structure are floating. They're connected by a series of escalators. For those of you who might be not familiar with this, it's a pretty amazing, almost Paradisian effect of we're moving from one level to another. But as you move from each level, you see everything around you. None of it's enclosed. It's all open. All the levels kind of float within the geodesic dome itself. But the, what pulls you through that space is a series of, it's full of amazing objects of a lot of famous art, like Rauschenberg and Warhol, artists of the late 60s. But also it has a big focus on the moon landing and NASA and the work that was being done in the sort of space race and space age as well. But you traverse the building and everything is about a sight line pulling you from one thing to another. So wherever you look, it's leading you, your eyes being led, it's being pulled to something, being pulled to something, then leads you to something else. And I think probably that the root of this chapter is, is really a method that, that I use and I teach through too, which is this idea of attract, reveal, and reward. And that's how we work a lot within exhibitions, that we find something that's going to attract people. We then reveal something new or different, and that might be whatever the object is, but then we like to should reward people as well, whether that's giving them something to take away with in terms of information, whether that's an overlook or some kind of view that they would not normally get, whether it's the scale of an object that suddenly is opened up once you do that reveal. So I like, I've used this pattern of thinking that's how a lot, how we pull people through space and how, again, is the heart of a lot of exhibition experience design. It's that wow moment that can be, again, like I say, on a small scale as well as a very, very large scale. So the, the reward, I like that. I haven't heard that before. Is that, is attract, reveal, and reward, is that a McNeilism? <laughs> or is that a, like a, is that a thing that I haven't heard of? It's a bit of a McNeilism, I suppose. There are maybe other versions of it, but it's one I've definitely honed, I suppose. There might be other I, ways I like of the reward end of that. Like your, the examples that you gave, seeing a vista that you didn't have before, they're all very experiential rewards. They're things that make you, give you a feeling or a sensation or position you in some, some way to, to feel some emotion, awe, surprise, fear, joy, whatever. But none of the rewards you mentioned have to do with reading a great deal about a subject. It's not the reward. That could be something along the way, but the reward has to be something phenomenological or something emotional. Am I reading between the lines correctly? No, I think you've got... Actually, when you just mentioned emotion, that's exactly what this chapter is talking about, is how we play on people's emotions which is exactly what we're doing. Whether And you mentioned the word surprise, which is a key one as well. This chapter pulls in some, again, just a little springboard here into some bigger themes within the book. One of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was that I couldn't find a book that I could teach with. There were other great books out there, but they didn't do everything I wanted them to do. 
I had to go to one book for one thing, another book for another thing, book for another thing. So maybe you could say this book was just some point of convenience for me. I don't know. But there are some great books out there on how to design exhibitions or make them very technical more books. There are great books out there that deal with the history of exhibitions. There are a few books that get to the theory behind exhibition making as well. But I wanted to find a way of how can those three all be in a book? Like how can, why do we have to talk about one in one place and one in another? And I really believe that we can't talk about the present if we don't understand the past. And having some historical context to everything I was talking about was important in order just to lay the ground for thinking about what's happening now, what will be happening in the future. So the this chapter definitely gets into that and looks at some historical examples of how we create these wow moments. And indeed, this is the one chapter where the Vundakarma does come in, because to me, that was one of the earliest examples of creating a wow moment. Objects hanging from a ceiling <laughs> at all the walls. It's a pretty vulnerable moment, right? <laughs> right. It's a camera that gives you a lot of wonder. I'm glad we're talking about emotion. One emotion that I've always been fascinated by is awe, yeah. A-W-E, which turns out to be related to fear. But it's that emotion where you, your eyes often look up, your jaw often goes down, you forget about everything else around you, you get blinders because you have that sort of like Indiana Jones, there's a giant stone rolling towards me. I'm frozen for a minute, kind of a thing. Eiffel Tower gives you awe. Grand Canyon gives you awe. But yeah, a very small item could give you awe. The Hope Diamond isn't particularly large at all, but it at at all, but it definitely gives you that that feeling too. Is awe one of the emotions that you talk about, or is it one of the yeah. things that you that a wow is generating? Is that what it's tapping? Because yeah. it's not tapping yeah. giggles and it's not tapping disgust. I guess theoretically it could, but is that the one? Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's it's definitely about that awesome experience that sometimes, which is hard to describe, but something just makes you stop in your tracks or that give out that wow exclamation. Talking about the smallest thing too, the, a little teaser on that, but the opening example in that chapter is that the Museum of Jurassic Technology in Los Angeles... <laughs> Awesome. Where, is that still there? Can you awesome. still Excellent. there? Yeah. Thank God. And, okay. and where you can see a full painting of figures on the top of a pinhead through a magnifying glass. Exactly. Yes, and you can. If that's not awesome, that <laughs> is totally awesome. And what's and excellent like, about that museum, and which is impossible to explain to anyone who hasn't visited. And then even half the people who have visited, you can't explain it to them either, I don't think, is that display case of the figures on the head of a pin, which are actually on the head of a pin, you can actually see them, is right next to another display case that has a piece of lead in it with a little bump. And it describes that there's a South American bat whose hypersonic echolocation is so powerful that it's able, it, this one was able to vibrate its own body into a block of lead and get stuck. And that <laughs> they have this block of lead. And both of those exhibits are impeccably labeled in the museum voice and yep. everything is just perfect. And one of them is completely fraudulent and the other one is completely accurate and they're right next to each other. Yeah. 
And the people that I know who have gone there, I'd say 50% of them think that's wonderful and 50% of them want their money back. Yeah, I love those kind of spaces, right? Those places where you get those opposite kind of reactions because uh, that's what you want a museum to do, right? You want it to cause a re- cause a reaction and one way or the other. We've got a couple of chapters to, to hint at here that are left. Chapter eight is trapped in... Oh, wait, we inadvertently just did a great segue for this, I think. Chapter 8 is trapped in glass boxes. What is Chapter 8 about? Uh, okay, in a, I suppose it it's really a, the bigger sort of message within this particular chapter is about constraints. And I'm, I talk about constraints in a broad term within exhibitions and experiences, the constraints of the glass box essentially as a place to house valuable objects or things you don't want people to touch. So we call a vitrine that goes over an object and is usually part of a piece of display furniture. Uh, but it's also about the constraints of or designers working with objects that are sensitive to light, might be susceptible to insects or other to touch and all those things. So it talks about object conservation in this chapter too, and how designers need to be aware of those factors, particularly clearly with object-based exhibitions. But it also talks about safety within the exhibition space for people as much as for objects. How do you design a space so that everyone can be accommodated, but also feel safe within that environment? And then the other part, which kind of gets more to the design, is looking really at the history of display furniture within the exhibition environment and where we're at today. And again, not a lot has changed if you look back historically at some of the very early display cases. We still pretty much do the same thing, which is construct usually a low table or pedestal or platform and place a glass box on top of it to protect things. So the chapter also looks at a variety, basically a vocabulary of display and exhibition furniture and all the types that we need or might need to design for an exhibition as well. And I think speculate on where, what's another way of displaying objects if we have to protect them. And we haven't got to the point yet, have we, of some kind of simulated or virtual, or should we say holographic type of display that might get us around that. Maybe you have some thoughts on that, Jonathan. I, I have to. I should have some kind of a bell or like some kind of a thing I should ring because you just said the magic word that I'm waiting for anytime I've talked to anyone about exhibitions, <laughs> which is the word hologram or holographic or something. I was just waiting ding, ding, for ding. that word. Ding, ding. <laughs> Special of the day. Bingo. I was trying not to do it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I actually worked once and only once with an actual genuine holographic technology. But generally, other than that, it's the word being used loosely. Like a lot of words are used in our profession very loosely. It sounds like when you you were saying trapped in glass boxes, but at the same time, the constraints you're talking about and the fact that this vocabulary of different case types has, in your words, not changed much, is an opportunity for you to then itemize a typology or a hierarchy of them to teach people. 
it's and just as you say, a typology is of saying, here's your options. Let's have Y, one D, and one C, we one of those. And, and is it, when you're teaching, are you sometimes I'll, I've talked about this in a way a mood board does the same thing if you're trying to come up with an idea and you check, I don't happen to know what's been done before as, a, as precedent, but if I research it, I can then create a mood board and I'll find many different ways it's been done, or maybe exhaustively every way that it's been done during the past. I can pick from one of those. But the way I often look at it is if your intention is to be innovative, which it doesn't have to be, but if your intention is to be innovative, which in my case and for my firm, it, it always is, it's what people are hiring us to do. Um, I prefer to call that a bad mood board and to tell people, go through that entire process. And then once you've gone through the entire process, put it on your wall. And when you throw your dart, throw it in the other direction. Don't hit one of those. Memorize yeah. all of them in order to try to do something new. Yeah. And I guess that when you say, here's a vocabulary or here's a typology, I guess that's a neutral statement. Here are the typologies. It's up to you whether you choose one of them as is, you try to thwart it, you try to Frankenstein some of them, you do the wonder camera thing you just said, and let's have some of them hanging upside down or whatever, right? Or is it use one of these? Is that what we need to say to students? Or is it say you can, but you can also do something new and maybe you'll get added to that later on? Mm. I would say that, uh, yeah, and to answer your question, the I'm teaching students who are both undergraduates and graduate students. And I was going to ask that. I was going to ask that question. Big difference there, yeah. depending on their level of experience. Certainly with undergraduate students, most of the students I teach have never ever taught, taken a class in exhibition design, even if they knew it existed as a field. And it's part of, again, going back to one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing, right? Is we want to elevate our field, we want people to understand it, we want to try and put it on the map. And that is definitely part of my impetus for doing the book as well. So I think as a teaching tool at the level I'm teaching at, this vocabulary is good because it covers the basics. Before you can then begin to think, how can I hack this and change it and make it into something different or think about it in a different way? Why do we have to do it in this way? So from that point of view, yeah, the vocabulary is helpful as a starting point. And I always tell the students I teach up front that exhibition design is this incredibly multidisciplinary subject. And you may, at one moment you're a furniture designer, another moment you're an architect and spatial planner, another moment you're a graphic designer, and then another moment you're developing content. It's And that's just the beginning of it. And uh, that's why we love it, right? Because it has all of that going for it and it, it pulls us in all those, or we like that variety and all of those, be challenged all those levels. But it's also really difficult to teach for that reason too, because not everyone's going to be good at all of those things and nor should they be. There are, of course, experts in building and designing exhibition furniture. Good others, just there are lighting designers and that's what they do too. But having a certain level of understanding of everything, of what it takes to put something together, what the needs of the piece of furniture are, how it's got to perform, or the purpose, you need to know that, even if you may not know all of the intricacies of how to design it all, at a certain level of detail. So for me, it's, it is about trying to break things down into more manageable modules. And I think that's a good word to use because modular 
is a big part of a lot of this chapter where we're thinking about how do you develop a suite of casework of furniture that can be lived together as a set and make sense in terms of how you build it so it's not all different sizes but there's some shared commonalities that make it easier to fabricate uh-huh. but so how can you build in this level of change as well to allow it to adapt to a different type of exhibition content or atmosphere or need chapter 10 is our last chapter i think it's going to be a good one of course it's not the last chapter in the book there are 12 we're only doing some of those chapters our listeners will need to buy the book from the publisher and from you when it comes out this summer to get the rest. But Smoke and Mirrors is chapter 10. Tell us, build our anticipation for this book with chapter 10. Okay. And this is probably one of my favorite chapters to write. And it was the first one I did, actually. And it, in some ways, I wouldn't say it's a bit of an outlier to the others, but it is in the sense that maybe pushes the book in a few different directions. The sort of overriding message here is about wonder. We talked about spectacle and all. I like this chapter because there's so much historical precedent for a lot of this that we can draw on. And some of the things I found in my research from early Magic Lantern shows in Europe in sort of 18th and 19th century, which were projecting images for audiences of ghoulish ghosts and spirits and also having over over voice narratives that were giving a sort of yeah, a narrative to it too, a voiceover. And then also pumping in smoke into the space in which to project onto so that these images really felt like they were hovering. And the smoke actually was a mixture of or sulfuric acid and things he was thinking they were kind of killing people at the same time as they were giving these performances. So the whole thing is really quite fascinating and has been documented pretty well, of course, especially when you look at the history of filmmaking that they've drawn on these Magic Lantern shows. But it got me again thinking about this idea of projection as a way of illusion, of turning a space from a simple of space with nothing in it to suddenly something with lots in it. And if we look at present day and the current space of the Van Gogh experience, the various team lab installations, the virtual rooms where the floor, the ceilings and the walls all are become part of an immersive space, it's all projection technology. Right. Yes, those projectors are amazing in terms of their power and lumens and output compared to the magic lantern. But the idea really hasn't changed that much again, right? We're trying to trying to deceive audiences in some way or create a space that doesn't exist or things that don't exist. So I really, it, I like this kind of looking at that history. And it's probably the part of the book where we, I sort of go further back in time to pull some of these things forward. So this chapter delves into this a lot more and looks at not just the history, but the current applications of projection mapping and animatronics and other types of illusionary devices within the exhibition space. So do you, in this chapter, use the word immersive? I do, but there is a chapter preceding this one, which... Don't give it away, don't give it away. I'll give it away, which talks much more about immersion. That is definitely a word of our time. I 
now I thought I really wanted the book before. Now I'm I'm not sure I can describe how much I want this book. So we've gone from the Monterey Berry Aquarium to Android clarinetists and everything in between in this conversation. So let me do a quick recap. Let me see if I got this. Our list for today was in our sneak peek at Tim McNeil's upcoming book, Exhibition and Experience Design Handbook. We teased five of the chapters. Chapter one, streakers, strollers, and studiers. Chapter two, once upon a timeline. Chapter five, wow moments. Chapter eight, trapped in glass boxes. And chapter 10, smoke and mirrors. How did I do? Did I get it all? You did. Yeah. All right. Tim, it's been great to have you on the show. Great to hang out with you and learn about what you're doing and get excited about this upcoming book. Thank you on behalf of the whole field for doing this book. And if folks would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn, pre-order book? What's the best way? Yeah, of course. Yeah, just thanks, Jonathan, for inviting me to talk about the book. And let's continue the conversation. There's a lot there. So thank you for that first. Yeah, no, I'm happy to continue the conversation with anyone listening too. The best way to reach me is email, probably. And that's mc. N-E-I-L at ucdavis.edu. Great. T-J McNeil at ucdavis.edu. Terrific. And if people, but if people want to pre-order the book, let's get serious here. How do they do that? Like, where do they go? Let's, we can post a link right on your show notes. Yeah, anything you've got, Tim, that you'd like to- There's a link to Roman and Littlefield, who are the publisher's website, and there's a- the link will take you directly to, to the pre-order page and tell and you a little bit more about the book as well. If you're too eager to even do that and you're listening and you want to Google, I'm sure you can Google Roman and Littlefield and the name of the book, yeah, Exhibition Experience Design Handbook, and you'll result, search result number one will be a pre-order form. Okay, so listeners, start Googling and look at the, look at the show notes for that. Let's all pre-order this book and give it some support. Okay, so thanks again, Tim. I think we've covered it. And thank you, dear listener, for your time in exchange. I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. And if you'd like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, head on over to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under my name, Jonathan Alger. I'm always looking out for new links in. I still don't know what to call those. So I won't call them anything. Or you can call. You can find me at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Okay. So that's it for this episode. By the way, did you know this podcast has an older sister? It's a very short newsletter every weekday under the same name. Tim was talking about it earlier. It's one quick insight each day for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. Just hit the big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile... I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.